Hello, you are listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat. How are you, Simone? It is, let's see, almost Halloween. Um, we've got a hurricane approaching, I- followed by a cold front. Um, I don't know what else to say, really, other than what more is going to happen this year. Yeah, cone of uncertainty number seven, in case anyone's keeping track of that. More tiresome than it is funny, right? Certainly. Yeah. Um, and so the the good news is is that we've run this fire drill several times already, um, and and that we're hoping that all of our communities are are well prepared for what's going to come in the next couple of days. Exactly. Yeah, and I know you know um, they're saying it's fast moving, so hopefully it'll move right through here, and this will be the last one because I believe Zeta will make the fifth landfall this year in in Louisiana. Um, you know, not to count all the times, I believe seven that New Orleans has been in the cone of uncertainty and our friends in Southwest Louisiana are still recovering from Laura and Delta, right? I had to get that one right. Cause, um, so we're, we're thinking of them, but hoping everyone stays safe from this storm. Um, yeah, certainly um, silver lining that we're learning the Greek alphabet. Um, and that Zeta is not the end of the alphabet, right? There are more to come, but hopefully, um, we can, we can, that's all the, enough of the Greek alphabet that we need to learn right now. So exactly. we don't need to get to Omega. Did so, you light your Margaret or candle? You know, I, uh, I have it, I've been lighting it and I, I you know, it's worked in the past, so I hope it can to call your to friend work. up and make sure exactly. she's okay. She has been very busy, as have all of our meteorologists. So thinking of them, thinking of um, anyone in the in the storm's path and, and hoping that it, it moves quickly through and does minimal damage. Um, well, Simone, shifting gears a little bit, you all have a really exciting event coming up in November. Uh, I know we've talked about Queen Bess a lot on the show in the past. Um, we've actually, you and I were on Queen Bess at the time of the um, dedication after the big restoration project was complete. And so Restore Retreat is actually going out and helping to do some plantings. Tell us about that. We are, we are. And we have um, a guest on later. We could talk a little bit about Queen Best. Um, we are happy to um, be involved in a partnership with uh, Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. We're also working with CPRA and the Barataria Terrebonne National Estuary Program. Um, as our listeners may know, we're, we're not really a volunteer organization. We concentrate a lot on um, outreach and engagement and, and certainly policy. Um, and this is one of our first forays into volunteering and and Queen Bess was just really too good to pass up. And so uh, we were presented an opportunity with Wildlife and Fisheries. Um, Apparently that our little birds friends have loved the island so, so much. And they had so many come in the spring to make the island their home. Um, They need a little fixer upper (laughs) to get it ready for the spring again. Uh, The um, one of the pictures from that uh, ribbon ribbon cutting, if you will, was, was the governor spreading sticks and stuff for the, for the pelicans and other birds to make their nests. Well, they certainly used all those and more. And so we're going to go, um, plant some mangroves and, and some other um, plants out there. It's interesting because it is a re- an island, right? And so you have to travel out there. Um, we are having to work with COVID restrictions. And so we're trying to um, 
make sure that everybody is socially distant and then we have all the proper protocols in place. But um, unfortunately, we're already to our max of volunteers, but we've had such a tremendous interest um, that we want to use this opportunity to sign folks up for, for future events, for some that our friends will be having, or if we do something like this again in the future. Um, it was great to see people wanting to get back outside. Um, we have some of the Nichols State University athletes joining us, some kids from Future Farmers of America. Um, we have some students from Fletcher Technical College. So we're really excited um, and we're hoping that the, the weather is good enough so that we can um, bring some materials out there for the birds for the spring. Well, that is awesome. And we'll definitely have to debrief on how the event went afterwards. I know if anyone can rally a bunch of people to get out and help Louisiana's coast, it's you and, and Victoria over at Restore Retreat. So I have no doubt that this is the first of many successful events to come from you all. So very exciting. Well, let's get to our program. Our next guest is a first-time guest on Delta Dispatches. Uh, I reached out to her and she actually came and spoke to our groups um, for Hispanic Heritage Month to talk about the different Hispanic and Latino cultures that comprise Louisiana and our coast. And it was so fascinating. Um, and, and she focuses a lot more broadly than just, just Hispanic culture. She focuses on all kind of cultures in Louisiana um, and has one project in particular that's a particular relevance to our listeners. So I, I thought she'd be a perfect guest for the show. Um, Maida Owens, Louisiana Folklife Program Director. Welcome to Delta Dispatches, Maida. Oh, welcome. Thanks for inviting me. So Maida, you are the director of the Louisiana Folklife Program. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be director of that program. Uh, well, I'm a cultural anthropologist and I've uh, been there uh, in the Division of the Arts Folklife Program um, for over 30 years. And so my career has ended up focusing on all the different uh, traditional cultures of Louisiana and, and the traditions that they um, maintain. So Maida, when you were a little girl, did, did, were you always interested in this? How, how does one go on a path to be a cultural anthropologist? <laughs> well, I'm one of those people that latched on to what I wanted to do quite early and, and didn't actually ever change um, my majors and such. I was in high school when I got introduced to cultural anthropology, and I knew immediately that's what I wanted to do. Um, I ended up being more in the field of uh, folklore uh, that's actually a separate discipline. Um, uh, there's overlap with cultural anthropology, but it overlaps with uh, a lot of other fields too. So, Mita, culture and traditions are obviously so important across Louisiana, certainly coastal Louisiana, but the entire state. Um, they really are the fabric that binds our state together. And we have an incredibly diverse set of cultures and traditions within Louisiana. So tell us a little bit about the Louisiana Folklife Program and the work that you all do there. Okay. Um, well, it started with the uh, when the agency was uh, created in 1979. Uh, one of the first employees was a uh, uh, the folklorist, and we've had a continuous uh, program since then. So over the years, we've tended to focus on the areas that other 
uh, researchers in the state were not focused on. So as a result, a lot of the work was in North Louisiana, the Florida parishes, the non-French areas, because Louisiana has an abundance of people who like to study us. But people here and all over the world love to come and, and research our cultures. Um, but more recently, um, you know, I, I've been focusing on the, the, the extreme coast. The types of programs we've done over the years can be based on an area or a tradition. For example, and some of them last many years and some of them, uh, you know, are relatively short. Like we had a short project on musical instrument builders and repairers a few years ago. But other projects have focused on uh, Baton Rouge with the Baton Rouge Traditions Project or storytelling in the 90s. We uh, focused on that for about nine years. Uh, and the projects will overlap in, in um, terms of the years um, because frequently they, they start and stop. Uh, we spent a lot of time in northeast Louisiana. Uh, then we also focused for five years, no, seven years on uh, immigrants because we had never done that before. We had never looked at the immigrant communities in the state. So that ended up being the new populations uh, project. And what, what I try to do is while we're doing the research is to have something that can sh be sh shared with the public, uh, and that's primarily on our website, the Folklife in Louisiana website, um, but also in exhibits, um, you know, other types of public presentations. So, Maida, do when y'all find these topics... Is it like just a personal interest of somebody to do musical instruments? Is it driven by maybe grants and where they come from? Or are you just like, hey, look, we need to find out more. You know, one project leads to another, right? You learn something that you didn't know in one project and you're like, I want to go down that rabbit hole a little deeper. That that sometimes happens, but sometimes it's much more strategic. Again, we, we try to look at, um, we've tried to do a survey of the whole state and uh, there's still some gaps that we haven't um, adequately documented uh, in terms of the, the geography, uh, you know, the geographic regions or cultural regions of the state. Uh, there's always more work that needs to be done. But, you know, again, filling in needs of, of what is glaringly um, not researched. So, um, but I also am advised by the Louisiana Folklife Commission, and that's a governor-appointed commission um, that, you know, guides the program and, and recommends to the Department of Cultural Recreation and Tourism and really any entity that's uh, working with uh, Louisiana's traditional cultures. And so they advise, and I, I use them as my um, sounding board, and in addition to just, you know, networking with all of, all the folklorists in the state and anyone that, well, it's not just the folklorist, it's anyone that's interested in this. And so the Louisiana Folklore Society ends up being important in all this because that's a major gathering place for, to share research, get to know each other, um, uh, you know, and, and frequently there I'll see needs of what, you know, what could be done, what can be done. But I also like to go through doors that are easy to open instead of forcing something to happen. Because I am just a one-person program at this point. It, it's been different in the past. But at this point, 
um, I am a one-person uh, program, so I have to be realistic of what can be done. And so if there are partners out there that want to work with me and, and get something done, that's more likely to happen. Well, I want to talk specifically about one program that's of particular relevance to this audience, the coastal audience, and that's the Bayou Culture Collaborative um, Project. Tell us about that, that program. Well, that, we've been doing this for about two years, and it grew out of a con, out of conversations uh, within the Louisiana Folklore Society, and um, in particular, Jonathan Foray uh, in Homa. You know, he has been he he has been talking about you know what's going to happen to the cultures of Louisiana, of, uh, extreme South Louisiana, in the process of land loss. And that really got me concerned. Again, I've been here all my life, um, been aware of it. You know, back in the 70s when I was in school, they were talking about land loss and the football, you know, um, metaphor. Um, but I, I was like so many people are where I just, you know, yeah, it's happening. You know, what, what can be done? But talking to Jonathan, I really realized that we needed to act and we needed to think more um, strategically about what can happen. And so my main concern is what happens to the cultures with either the people that stay and so many people didn't, or when people um, disperse either within Louisiana or beyond, what happens to the culture? Um, when people start moving into areas in large numbers in the future, what happens to the receiving community's culture? You know, so it, it's, it's, it's a question to ask for everyone. And it really is a statewide issue. It's, it's not the extreme coast. That's where it's happening on a daily basis nowadays. But um, we need to get more people engaged. And so what we came up with was to do two things. One is to offer to support tradition bearers to pass on a tradition in some way. So that might be a workshop, an apprenticeship. Um, and we experimented with a number of different um, formats in the first year, but really honing in on the passing it on workshops, um, getting right down to it. You know, the, if if you move, you know, you physically can move, but if the knowledge doesn't go with you, uh, then it can be lost. Uh, the second type of workshop we're doing is conversations among the professionals and uh, to try to help um, the scientists understand the need to consider the human dimension uh, in addition to specifically the culture's um, and then the arts community, the culture communities, to help them understand, you know, what the issues are and how uh, they could participate in, um, in this issue. Yeah, that's such an important topic and something that maybe isn't always uh, front of mind. I mean, people in Louisiana, we, we, we care about our cultures and our traditions, and it really binds us together. But as you think about migration for different reasons or you know, like you were saying, communities that, um, you know, maybe have, as a result of hurricanes and land loss, been somewhat hollowed out. I mean, what happens to those traditions? And and we've had Jonathan Foray on the show before, you know, really talking about the Ruguru Fest, but 
also talking more broadly about his work in that region to help, um, you know, maintain some of those, uh, you know, traditions and, 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 and that culture. So what are some of the, the communities that you've worked with already, Maida? Um, there are quite a few that um, we have. Um, I'm real pleased to say that we've reached out to many of the uh, First Nations communities in, across South Louisiana, mainly in Southeast Louisiana so far. Um, but, you know, we've uh, the United Home and Nation, the Poinishan Indian Tribe, um, the uh, Grand uh, Village um the Grand Bayou Indian Village uh, in Plaquemines, those are some of the communities that we've, we've um, supported uh, in First Nations, but also the Center for Traditional Boat Building. Right now they're doing boat building uh, workshops and paddle carving. We've had uh, duck carving, um, Cajun music, um, Mardi Gras costume making. The Crew of Tradition in Homa is focusing on eco-friendly um, uh, Mardi Gras throws, for example. Um, so yeah, there there are quite a few of them that we've had, and and the website has all the details if anybody is is interested in it. Um, Jacques, you could um you could host a workshop on making your own potato salad, like your grandma <laughs> used to make. I'm not kidding. Like that's the kind of stuff, right? You know, cultural things and recipes and, and fast down. So Jonathan is always a great guest for us. And, and so I'm glad to hear you mention him as well. So your work has received some media attention um, threatened by land loss. Tell us more about the heart of Palmetto stories. Well, Tegan Wendland is uh on the coastal desk, and that's a special project between uh, w, uh, WWNO and LPB to focus on uh, reporting about the coast. And she got interested in the cultural aspect and interviewed Janie Luster, who is a Homa Indian palmetto uh, weaver. Uh, and she had off she had done a workshop. Um, to teach palmetto weaving and a young man, Rhett Williams got interested in it and was um, really uh, dove right into it and and didn't just quit after the workshops. So Tegan um, interviewed Janie and Rhett and produced this small video heart of the palmettos, um, which is all, you know, I linked to all of these things on the, uh, uh, web page for the Bayou Culture Collaborative. But uh, yeah, Tegan was fabulous. And she also interviewed me separately. And um, that got uh, national attention. Uh, an excerpt of it was uh, posted on um, NPR. It went national. So um, slowly but surely, we're, we're get, trying to raise awareness of some of the issues. That's great. And, you know, we're big fans of Tegan and the work that she and everyone at WWNO do on coastal reporting, along with Travis Lux and others. So really glad that they featured um, your your program. So Meta, you have a lot of experience in this um, in this space, but what advice would you give to people, whether they're, you know, NGOs, maybe state agencies or others working with communities at risk from coastal land loss? How can we better meet the needs of these communities in terms of our outreach and engagement? 
Well, the main thing is to, at this point, I think, is to raise awareness and uh, appreciation that the, the environment and the people are, are interwoven, that you can't really separate the two. Um, the, you know, the, the, the people, especially the ones that are have traditions that are so closely tied to the environment, um, it's going to be traumatic for them to leave that because they're not just leaving their livelihood, but they're leaving um, their whole culture, you know, as, as they perceive it. Now that doesn't mean they can't adapt and they, they haven't adapted in the past, um, but it's still going to be difficult. And so I think the more policymakers and, and all the different agencies that can become more sensitive to the fact that this is such an issue um, and build into their plans ways to support the people. Um, I don't advocate any one specific strategy. Um, you know, if somebody wants to stay or relocate or we end up with managed retreat or whatever, the culture still needs to be addressed in all of those um, and the more thoughtful we are about it, the better our culture will survive. Um, it will survive in some form or the other, but it. I think if everybody thinks now about what they want to make sure they want to take with them, Jonathan Foray loves to talk about, you know, what do you want to put in your trunk? Um, well, if you haven't even put it in your trunk yet, and putting it in your trunk is a way of, you know, identifying it, saying this is important, and I want to make sure that this is available to my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren and such. And so if you don't do that with intention and be strategic about what, when you, whether you're staying or moving, that, that those, it's very easy to fall into patterns where you lose a lot of your culture. And I'll give you an example. Um, Baton Rouge is receiving a lot of people. But Baton Rouge doesn't hardly know that they are. Um, and so when, a, when people move to Baton Rouge uh, and they aren't all in a neighborhood, and this is true of any of the places, not just Baton Rouge, but if they aren't in a neighborhood, they don't have a place to congregate, they... They don't have a local leader who has, uh, you know, um, who who calls them together for social gathering. It's, you know, right now it's hard to do any of that with COVID, but COVID, <laughs> you know, will end someday. And but this is so much longer term issues than 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 COVID. So there are things we can start doing now to help supporting those networks of whether they are have moved or not, um, but, and helping individuals think about what do they, what do they value? What do you want to make sure continues wherever you are? Because there are things you can be doing now to make sure of it. Teach your grandchildren, you know, or if your grandchildren, you don't have grandchildren, aren't, you know, they aren't interested, teach somebody, Teach, um, make sure that that people appreciate your culture because it's very easy to relocate, end up in the middle of suburbia or somewhere, and without reinforcing those traditions, they just get 
lost, you know, and that that's the, the, the uh, Janie Luster was telling me about how the home Indians are in Baton Rouge. And that's where a lot of my thoughts on this are coming from. And she was worried about the Palmetto. And I said, well, I don't think you need to worry about the Palmetto because it's popping up in my suburban Baton Rouge um, yard without me trying, you know. Um, but I don't know how to weave it. I haven't, I don't know how to harvest it. Um, you know, that, that, that's, I don't have a, you know, so you can't rely on me, even though I have the palmetto. Um, and that's just one example, whether it's your language or your food ways, you know, if, if, (laughs) you know, frequently cooks, have their secret recipe and they take a lot of pride of it. But it's really sad when that secret recipe dies because somebody never shared it with someone, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Well, this, I mean, it's obviously so important and something that, you know, when we're, we're thinking about coastal land loss and we're thinking about, um, you know, migration and communities may not always be top of mind, but it should be. And and so thank you for the work that you um, are doing and the Bayou Culture Collaborative um, to keep this type top of mind and to help preserve um, these important traditions and culture. Maida, where can people go and how can they support um, you and your efforts with the Bayou Culture Collaborative? Give us your website and, and all of that good information. Oh, well, uh, first, the Bayou Culture Collaborative has a, um, a Facebook group and anybody can join that. Um, you can join the Louisiana Folklore Society. If, if you want to learn more about, you know, the research that's going on and this, these kind of initiatives, you can join that. They have an annual meeting each March uh, or rather each spring. And um, you can share, you know, that anybody can share their research through that. There's a call for proposals every year. Uh, And then the, for the state agency, I have a web page, um, www.louisianafolklife.org slash Bayou Culture. And that's where you can find out about all the, the, um, the workshops. Um, but there is one more thing I want to make sure uh, I, I ask everybody, that if you know a tradition bearer, or it might be yourself, that really needs to pass on a tradition, please let me know because I can reach out to them and see if we can arrange something. Um, because if it's not passed on, it's, it's, it's gone. Great. And they can find that information on your website. Mm-hmm. Or they can email me at uh, mowens at crt.la.gov. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much, Maida, for being on the show. I think this was a really fascinating discussion and, and very important information that, like I said, we all need to keep top of mind. Um, so we'd love to have you back on in the future to talk more about the, the work you're doing and the progress that's um, happening with the Bayou Culture Collaborative. I'd love to. Well, thank you. Thank you, Maida. Uh, Well, it is time for our Coastal Voice of the Week. Uh, This week's Coastal Voice is from Elaine in Boyce, Louisiana. And Elaine says, it's our only natural defense against Mother Nature. Saltwater is destroying the brackish waters for fish. 
land is being lost at rapid rates. And so thank you, Elaine and Boyce. Um, and a reminder, you can go online at any, po any point um, and share your coastal voice. Go to mississippiriverdelta.org slash restore dash the dash coast. And we might just read it on an upcoming episode. Um, fascinating conversation. Uh, we're going to have a frequent guest back on the show, although we haven't checked with him, checked in with him in quite a while. I'm excited to hear about some upcoming news that's, that's come out recently and how he's doing. So stick with us and we'll be right back after the break. back you're listening to delta dispatches we're discussing louisiana's coast its people its wildlife its jobs and why restoring it matters i'm jacques bear with environmental defense fund and i'm simone malaz with restore or retreat and i'm back with the coastal stat of the week from audubon magazine it says historically the black rail could be found at scattered sites east of the rocky mountains both in freshwater marshes of the interior and saltwater salt marshes along the coast. But in the past two decades, a host of threats, including human expansion, water diversion, and sea level rise caused by climate change, have contracted those habitats drastically while reducing the bird's population by up to 90% in some areas. Hopefully we'll get into that a little bit more during the segment. Yeah, welcome back to Delta Dispatches, Eric Johnson, Director of Bird Conservation with National Audubon Society. Um, I think Eric is really trying to give Alicia Renfro a run for her money. You know, That's we'll what see. Alicia gets for being on vacation. Exactly. <laughs> we'll see which one of them has uh, had the most frequent appearances on Delta Dispatches. But regardless, we're very happy to have Eric back. Um, how have you been, Eric? How are you and your family holding up? I know um, you have kind of had to go through Laura and Delta. How's your family doing? Hi, Jacques. Hi, Simone. Thanks for having me back. And um, yeah, thanks for asking. I mean, I, I live just north of Lafayette, so pretty far inland. We were right on the edge of both storms, um, so we fared reasonably well. Um, certainly a lot better than a lot of our friends over in the Lake Charles and southwestern Louisiana areas. Um, so our hearts go out to them. But um, you know, we had no damage to the home and we did lose power for, you know, a few days each time, but nothing we couldn't handle. So, yeah. And of course, my thoughts are going out to everyone in Southeast Louisiana right now, too, with yet another tropical storm slash hurricane um, headed for Louisiana and coastal Mississippi. So, man, what a year. I know. Well, let's certainly hope, as we were saying earlier in the show, that we don't get to Omega and that this is, you know, uh, five landfalls is kind of, we've, we've done our share for this hurricane season and maybe let's say the next five hurricane seasons. So I did want to ask um, one of my favorite places on the coast. I had the pleasure of visiting a few times um, when I was at Audubon, but is the Rainy Wildlife Sanctuary in Vermilion Parish. How, how did Rainy hold up during the storms? Yeah, so Rainy is Audubon's oldest and largest sanctuary. It's in southeastern Vermilion Parish, right on the edge of Vermilion Bay. And um, yeah, I mean, it was it was hit pretty hard, actually, by particularly, um, which one was it now? Laura, I guess. Um, the manager's home got about a foot of water in it, um, and a couple of structures, smaller structures, were, were swept off their foundations. Um, so there's quite a bit of cleanup that needs to happen. Um, fortunately for 
when Delta came through, the water levels didn't get quite as high. Um, so it, it didn't re-sustain damage that was already experienced from Laura. Um, but it's, you know, it's a lot of work to clean it up and, um, you know, move some of these structures back into place. So it's going to take, it's going to take months to really um, get the place fully operational again. Mm. So, well, <laughs> well, yeah, so I was just going to say, I mean, please keep us posted on that. Um, you know, like so many other places, there's a long road to recovery. And I know uh, you and your colleagues have done so much work um, in the aftermath of Rita and other storms to help rebuild and restore, you know, the marshes in and around Rainy, um, and also to protect it as the, you know, very important wildlife sanctuary that it is. So our thoughts go out to everyone um, that's doing the important work of, of helping with the sanctuary right now. Yeah, well, so thanks. Let's talk it'll, oh, I'm sorry, Simone, go ahead. No, 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 no. I wanted to jump on. Go ahead. You finish your thought. I was just going to say, um, you know, just despite the damage that we had there, the sanctuary lands itself, the much of the marsh did fairly well. And a lot of the restoration projects that we've recently put into place there, such as these tall terraces that were just completed last, uh, last summer, um, they held up. And so, you know, it's, it, you know, buildings and, and whatnot can be moved, they can be replaced. Um, but fortunately, the, the marsh itself is, is in reasonably good shape, certainly fared a lot better than after Hurricanes Rita and Ike. Yeah, we heard a similar story at the CPRA meeting uh, last week. It's same update, while um, certainly devastating. Um, there was a silver lining to that and that the coastal projects uh, in marshes now that we're hearing from you seem to hold up well uh, during the storms, which is certainly one of their biggest intentions to begin with. So you were recently in the news about a species that you've been on the show to talk about before, the black rail. Uh, it's also been called the elusive marsh bird. So tell us about that black rail and tell us about your work. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and actually the black rail, a lot of where we do that work in Louisiana was ground zero, um, for Delta and Laura. So we still have a little bit of a, you know, quite a bit of post hurricane assessment to do on, in terms of how that bird fared. Um, but yeah, the black rail is a, is a really mysterious bird. It's, it's very poorly known, very rarely seen by bird watchers in Louisiana. There are scattered records that date back decades. Um, very few of them have confirmation. So um, in the process of uh, over the last 10 years, the bird was proposed for, for listing or was sort of moving through the process of being proposed for listing. And as part of that, um, we worked with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries to begin a series of systematic surveys in 2017 to figure out if the bird was indeed a, um, part of the, the, what we call the core avifauna of Louisiana. Is it found here regularly? Does it breed here? And um, it, that was just not known. There were a few records, like I mentioned, sort of scattered here and there, but really no systematic surveys had been done. So we started those surveys in 2017 and documented over 70 um, detections of this species. And so that pretty much confirmed that there are places in particularly southwestern Louisiana where this bird is found year round. It's likely a, a breeder. Um, and it's likely been here all along, um, just sort of going under the radar, just incredibly cryptic um, and really, really, really hard to find. So the, the, the best way to, the, that we were able to find them is, is literally to go out, you know, before sunrise and after sundown 
and do systematic playback surveys and then do what we call drag line searches where we um, grab a few people and, and grab a rope and some buckets and sort of drag through the marsh and try to flush them up. And it's, it's a lot of effort. Um, we put in, you know, who knows how many hundreds or thousands of man hours to find 70 birds. Um, but ultimately it shows that they're here. So now we have to figure out how to manage for them, how to, how to protect them from, from going extinct. So related to that, in recent news last week, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service announced that the Eastern Black Rail will be officially classified as threatened under the Endangered Species Act. So why did USF or the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service take this action and, and why is it important? Right. Yeah. So as um, Simone mentioned in the intro, you know, there's parts of the in parts of the range of the species. It's declined by about 90 percent in the last couple of decades particularly in the mid-Atlantic states. Um, we also know over the last, you know, decades before that, that most of the interior population has disappeared. Um, those sites where they used to occur no longer host black rails. Um, sea level rise is a substantial threat for this species. Um, this is a bird that, on, at least on the coastlines, tends to occupy the higher stretches of the marsh, sort of in between the upper edge of the tidal zone and sort of the chenilles. Um, and so that zone of the, of the marsh is getting more and more inundated, more frequently inundated by storms. Um, and that's, you know, exacerbated by sea level rise. Um, and so this, this bird is really on the brink. It has a very, very narrow tolerance of, of habitats. So, um, appears to be particularly sensitive, um, to these kinds of problems. And because the population estimate at this point for the United States is less than a few thousand birds. Um, it is. It prompted the the service to to um, identify it as a threatened species under the ESA. So, um, you know, that has lots of implications, and we, and we can talk about some of that. But this is sort of a a last ditch effort um, from a policy angle in order to try to reverse the declines of the species and and bring it back from the brink of extinction. So let's talk about that, Eric. What, what does that mean to be listed? So it, it offers additional protections for the bird and the habitats on which it depends. Um, so under the listing, there are certain kinds of land management practices that um, are either bound by certain times of the year when they can be performed, such as fire management. Um, so we know that prescribed fire is, uh, is a good way to reset um, high marshes from becoming too shrubby and put them back into a more vegetative state. But also, you know, these birds nest on the ground and when they molt in the, in the late summer, they actually go flightless. They, they completely drop their, their wing feathers and they go flightless for several weeks. So it's a really bad idea to, to prescribe fire during the nesting season and during the molting season. So, so where black rails are present, they've sort of created restrictions around when, um, when you can burn. Um, and there's other sorts of restrictions like, you know, how to, you know, mowing certain parts of the habitat and, and other ways of, of managing these high marshes um, for various land use practices, right? And that might be for, for wildlife management. It might be for, um, you know, duck hunting or model duck habitat. Um, it, you know, there, there may be other reasons, you know, cattle grazing is another um, land use that, that potentially intersects with black rail habitat. So it, it offers additional protections. And one of the hopes too, is that it creates a system in which the um, 
federal and state agencies can work together to provide incentives and financial incentives to both public and private lands um, to help with the appropriate land management practices that will help reverse the declines of this species. Well, that was going to be my next question, Eric, is, is how do you work with the landowners? Or how do you even educate them and talk to them about something that hardly anything know, hardly anybody knows about? Sure. No, that's, that's the real trick. And um, I mean, like I said, we've only in Louisiana known really since sort of 2017, 2018, that there were even black rails here. So those conversations are really just beginning. Um, We've had really excellent relationships with with several uh, landowners in Southwest Louisiana, um, some of which are already, you know, engaging in in management practices that are uh, helping the black rail habitat, um, which is really exciting to see. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot more of these conversations that that are still going to have to happen. Um, and and like you said, we don't know, we know a lot about a very small area where black rails are. We, there's a lot of land <laughs> that we're just not sure if it's, if it, if it hosts black rail and, and how many, uh, you know, private landowners might be um, impacted. I will say, you know, in Louisiana, that the only places where we found black rails in that two year survey were, was on private lands. We didn't find any black rails on public lands. Uh, we didn't find any of the national wildlife refuges or any of the state lands. Um, in Texas, it's actually quite different. Most of the black rail work there in the coast is, has been on public lands, and there are quite a few black rails there. So even though we share a lot of the sort of same geography and the same habitat between Texas and Louisiana, and we can you know trade and, and learn from each other's research and management practices, um, implementing those management practices is going to have to take a very different approach here than it does in Texas. So... Erica, you think um, it's interesting to say about private versus public lands, right? We, we have talked about it a little bit on the show, but not too much. But so much of coastal Louisiana is privately held, um, probably more so than, than a couple other states. But that's interesting to find nothing. They have some really big areas out in southwest Louisiana, especially. Um, so that's interesting to see where, where they like to be. But like you said, so much more work that needs to be done. So what else can anybody do to help the Eastern black rail survive and, and rebound? Well, certainly supporting coastal restoration is, is hugely important. Um, you know, these are birds that occupy the higher stretches of the marsh, as I mentioned, and marsh creation projects have the potential to create black rail habitat. Chenier restoration projects, um, have the potential to, to sustain and create black rail habitat. And it's really important that we start to think about um, these, 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 this topography in the marsh. Um, you know, much of coastal Louisiana is low wet marsh and, and you know, private landholders who, who have that kind of habitat almost certainly do not have black rails. But if there are higher stretches, maybe along the edges of levees or, um, you know, up in the areas where it approaches sort of the prairie habitat or, or, or areas of the marsh that approaches, approaches the chenires. Those are places that might support black rails, and that's an integral part to the storm protection system uh, for, for people, particularly in southwest Louisiana. You know, these, these small little ridges, these, these elevated areas helped, you know, help protect um, inland communities from storm surge, from flooding, and those kinds of things. So, you know, coastal restoration um, is, is, is really active in southeastern Louisiana. It's, it's, it's 
lot of good projects going forward in southwestern Louisiana. And, um, you know, that is, I think, a really important opportunity that we have in Louisiana that many other places don't um, to help help restore um, not only black rail habitat, but habitat for a whole variety of coastal seabirds and waterbirds and, and marsh birds that depend on, on this landscape. And um, the Endangered Species Act has an amazing track record of success and, and bald eagles and, and um, brown pelicans are two very key examples of that. You know, there isn't anybody that I talk to that isn't excited to see brown pelicans and, and bald eagles in, in Louisiana, right? I mean, they're just spectacular birds. And, um, you know, the black rail isn't quite as large and charismatic, but it is a really cool looking bird. It's about the size of a, a large sparrow. It has bright red eyes. It is a black body with little white spots on its back. It is a cool looking bird. Um, and I certainly hope that more people, you know, ever get the chance to see it. It is, it is one of those, it's a, it's a classic Halloween bird. Um, so, but yeah, the, the Endangered Species Act is incredibly successful um, at recovering species. And ultimately it takes decades in some cases, like it has with the brown pelican and bald eagle. Um, but it can take decades to bring them back from extinction. You know, in the 1960s in Louisiana, there were no brown pelicans nesting here anymore. None. Um, the species essentially went extinct in Louisiana. And so with the identification of, of that the, and then the, the listing of it in the 70s, um, the banning of DDT and a whole bunch of other management and, and policy actions and recovery actions, um, Louisiana now has more brown pelicans than any other state in the, in the United States. So, um, and it, it was delisted in 2009. So hopefully... You know, the goal of these listing decisions is temporary, right? This, this is not a permanent solution um, to maintain a species on the endangered species list. Um, the goal is to actually bring it back to the point where it can be removed and these extra regulatory processes are no longer necessary to sustain the population. So, you know, there's a long, long road ahead with the black rail. There's a lot we don't know about its ecology. Um, is habitat preferences, how to manage that habitat, how to create that habitat, how to sustain that habitat. And when you have an existential threat like climate change and sea level rise impacting that habitat, that makes it all the more challenging. But, you know, ultimately this process will, will lead to steps that will um, help reverse those problems and address those problems. And, you know, Maybe by the time I retire in, in a few decades, we'll, we'll see the ESA listing for the black rail drop. That would be a, um, a really, really exciting moment. But a lot of work has to be done still. I love that thought that, that that's how you go out on dropping the yeah. listing. Professionally, I'm out of here. I did what I needed <laughs> to do. I also love to hear you talk about birds, Eric. It's so fascinating when you talk about them and your descriptions of them. I just think it's so funny and interesting. Um, and I always appreciate the, the detail that you provide too. So, um, okay. Is there anything else going on besides the black rail at, at Audubon or? Any other birds you want to talk about today? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I guess one thing I was going to just mention at is is um, we're getting to the point of Christmas, and uh, the Christmas bird count is coming up. Um, Audubon is moving forward with the Christmas bird count in a COVID safe way, 
Um, and so if, if folks are interested in participating, uh, they're, they're welcome to reach out to me, um, you know, and get more information about that or you can org and, uh, and learn more about it there. Um, so that's the, that's, that's sort of the next big step. It's going to be, you know, it's, with with COVID and 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 everything this year, it's been everything's been a moving target. But it looks like we can do the Christmas bird count safely. We can do it outdoors. We can do it with social distancing. Um, and it's and it's a really important data set. It's one of the longest lasting data sets in the um, that describes bird populations anywhere in the world, dating back over a hundred years. So it's really important that we keep the tradition moving and we do it in a safe way. So I encourage people to to participate. Thanks again to all of our guests for this conversation. Um, and thank you all at home for listening to Delta Dispatches. We'll be back next week with some more great content. See you then. 